This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. If I really want the if I really want the um, the food experience, I can get curbside if I'm willing to brave that. But most of the time, what I'm missing is just the place and the people the people that I ate with, that I could sit across the table from. Hello, this is The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. I am Lindsay Christians. And I am Chris Lay. If you have been listening to this podcast, you know that we try to keep it pretty light around here especially given the bummer of a year that we've all been having. But (laughs) as we reach the end of 2020, thank the Lord above, uh, and COVID-19 continues to stomp all over our dreams, it is pretty clear that not all of the restaurants we love are going to make it through the winter, which is incredibly scary and sad. So we've been thinking a lot about what we miss when a restaurant like Mana Cafe or Sunroom Captain Bill's, Charlie's on Main, even Graft on the Square. When those close, what do they leave behind? What do we remember and where do those stories live? We talked this week with John Michael Rasmus and Nicole Fromm, who are founders of the blog Eating in Madison A to Z. And they're also authors of the 2015 book Madison Food, A History of Capital Cuisine. Their newborn daughter, Dahlia, who wasn't even two months old when we recorded this, also makes the occasional appearance. This episode of the podcast will not only wrap up the year, it will also be our last corner table for the immediate future. We will have one more treat before the new year, so stay tuned after this interview. At the very least, Lindsay and I are going to be taking a couple of months off to retool and re-energize for whatever comes next, which will be something. We'll be back (laughs) with something. For now, give a listen. Welcome, John, Michael, and Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. I was thinking about, you know, the end of this year and how we're going to be looking back. And it struck me that people always seem so shocked when restaurants close. Like there's always this shock and sometimes dismay that's expressed uh, when restaurants decide to close for whatever reason. But I think that, you know, maybe better than most that restaurants don't last forever. So my, my first question for you is when restaurants close, what do they leave behind? Sure. Um, well, we, we talked briefly about this. We're like, um, well, ceramic glassware. Uh, <laughs> a, uh, uh, we've been, we own, I think, a piece of sun print uh, paraphernalia. And uh, occasionally there is a... Uh, <laughs> Excuse. Not doing this good a job. Okay, continue your thought. Okay, so yeah, we we own a piece of uh, sun print paraphernalia. We have been to some restaurants that are using uh, the former name of the restaurant uh, on their uh, coffee mugs. Uh, beyond that. Um, and of course, you know, there's a certain, uh, 
linguistic quality of which, oh, you know, that's in the old blank place. Mm-hmm. That's in the old, you know. And unless it's a place like um, where Haveli is in Fitchburg, which was at least six different restaurants in the in the decade or so that we were eating regularly, um, usually you can usually they only end up with one or one name like oh that's in the old uh, that's in the old uh, underground kitchen space that's what we, we said about heritage when when that when that happens so glassware uh, cookbooks you know a lot of your uh, more adventurous restaurants leave behind really great legacies in form of cookbooks as well as uh, menus you know I know that and Chris you especially you know about the library and historical collection of menus. That's pretty cool. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, we're kind of talking out of, not out of experience on this, but it does seem that there are sort of family lines and traditions that are passed down amongst the creative people that have cooked, that have planned, that have taught and mentored each other or competed with one another. I think that that sort of genealogy probably also pervades the whole social ecosystem too. And then the yeah. thing I just thought of, we'll come back to that. <laughs> Sometimes they also leave EPs of comedy tapes, uh, comedy songs like uh, Rocky Rococo has <laughs> oh, yeah. a tape called Kitchen Licks. <laughs> Let's, yes. Oh yeah. I've no, never heard of comedy this. comedy tracks are on that uh, cassette tape. Yeah, yeah I, think, uh, I think Ben Munson uh, wrote that up for Tone Madison around the time that Rocky Rococo's, um, you know, Jim Peterson. Yeah. Uh, passed away. So yeah, that is out there and there are clips of it on, on YouTube. If anybody wants to <laughs> be an intrepid internet, uh, you know, time traveler, <laughs> find them. I, I, f- I feel like cookbooks were like the Bluefies cookbook, for example. Um, I, I don't know if that was like trendy for a little while. I've heard that Tori Miller is working on a cookbook that I have not yet seen. Um, but there are like that, that seems to be like the, there's an ovens of Brittany cookbook and that was very influential here locally too. Did you use those as materials when you were doing research for the book? We did actually, because it was uh, a great source to hear what restaurants wanted to say about themselves, right? The foreword, which rest, which recipes they chose to include, which they did determined to leave out. So there's no recipe for a morning bun in that Ovens of Brittany cookbook. Sadly. That's kind of amazing to me. Now, granted, what I've heard about the morning bun is it takes at least three days because there's yeast and all kinds of proving and rising and things that have to happen with it. So I probably wouldn't make one myself. (laughs) Although what am I doing now anyway? Maybe I would. If you there know? was a time to try, now is the time. Yeah. Not to get uh, too far ahead of ourselves, but um, the reason why you guys are here to talk about restaurants is you have the book, uh, Madison Food, uh, History of Capital Cuisine. But then, I guess, w- would you consider it previous to that? Or is, is the um, the Madison A to Z dot com still, do, do you still consider it active i mean the website's there and your archive of everything that you've done is there but it hasn't been updated in a while for you know obvious reasons you guys had the book and everything else um so yeah so that that's why you guys are here and why you uh you know know stuff about restaurants 
Uh, I would say that um, uh, the blog as words, we probably agreed to take down about two years ago. We just um, we just were we were finding it difficult to write about you know cheeseburgers at places that had Pepsi menu boards with changeable letters um, in any sort of intelligible way. So we decided that we would continue to eat at restaurants, but we our, our writing on them slowed down dramatically. And then we were like, oh, we've got 43 more of these that we need to write. Uh, maybe we just could post some pictures. Uh, and and that would be sufficient. And, you know, and we were, so we were slowing down. We were also, uh, we every so often we'd hit a place that was really hard to get to. And my job had changed such that um, it was hard for, it was hard for us to even get to places for dinner in a reasonable time. Um, I would not get home from work until 6 30 PM. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of challenges to sort of keeping it updated. And, and so we still were eating alphabetically. We just weren't necessarily writing and, and, sharing our uh, our incisive uh, thoughts about uh, various things that were served with french fries and cheeseburgers um, but then when obviously when the pandemic happened we're like well that's we're not doing this for a while uh, <laughs> we're not gonna make it to wall street bistro and mazamani anytime soon true uh, <laughs> And yeah. so, uh, and so that's where we've been for the. That's where we've obviously been for the last nine months. Is just in a, in a holding pattern for that reason. Uh, it may be something that we're interested in picking up again, but it may be something that just will sit as it sits. But we're not going to take it down. We're going to keep you know paying the web hosting fee for the blog because we do consider it a resource of the things that we gathered in the past and and the historical artifact that it is. Absolutely. Uh, I actually, I met you guys on Twitter close to 10 years ago, thereabouts. Uh, and I remember you invited me, I think back when my Twitter handle was maybe Pickles Dickles, I think. I, I can't even remember what it used to be at the time. Um, but you had me uh, show up uh, to the, the Dandelion food cart on Library Mall, which, uh, speaking of closures, has since uh, closed down. <laughs> but yeah, so that was a, I mean, that th was back when you could really meet fun, interesting, random people on Twitter in Madison. Just these, you know, kind of strangers. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Aww. Was, there has been something, <laughs> it's hard to say what it is, but there's something that's been lost from sort of the early days of the internet when just sort of like being on the internet was interesting enough. You know, now it's, you know, now it's, now you're an influencer or whatever the, uh. <laughs> Yeah. I, I wanted to connect sort of your work with eating in medicine, A to Z, and then your, uh, the book, which is, has, takes a very different tone, right? But when you think about like the Madison restaurant scene in like the 2010s, what are some ways that it looks the same or different than in the previous decades that you discovered through working on the book? Well, I think that something happened in the 2010s that well, we stumbled into by accident because we started the blog in 2004 and finished the first list in 2012. 
Um, something happened during that time, even on a national scale, where the rise of celebrity chefs, there was a major um, blossoming of sort of foodie culture to the point where foodie was no longer a niche. It was sort of what everybody did. And um, it was totally an accident that we did our blogging at the same time that that was happening. But the result was that there was a lot more turnover and a lot more real creative energy and even like a celebratification of people. And, uh, you know, hand in hand with what was, you know, development in Madison and, the uh, you know, basically it's a very affluent city, right? So you've got a lot of creative resources. So I noticed that that is what happened. And we happened to be there by accident, documenting it in an amateur way. But yeah, then suddenly, like, even reviewing food and writing about food or uh, emulating chefs at home all became the things that normal people did. And much like the internet, um, it wasn't just a hobbyist thing. It was much more mainstream. And again, I think that was part of a national trend. I'm not a, I'm not a pro to speak, uh, you know, about it real in detail. But Kevin Alexander, I was just reading his book called Burn the Ice. It's a great book. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, wow, Madison could be in this book, except that it's a little bit too small. But we were just right in line with that trend of uh, a huge interest in blossoming in food and restaurants. Yeah. And just to, just to, to, to finish that and go back a little bit on the, on the internet point, the, um, you know, when we started, blogs were relatively newish. There's no YouTube. There's no Instagram. There's no Yelp even at that point. People aren't even able to write, you know, they brought out the cheese curds 20 minutes late. I mean, there's none of that that really exists in, um, sorry, in the web space. And I think part of the reason that all of that stuff grew on the chef side and on the restaurant side is because they were starting to get the feedback loop close with you know people were starting to talk about eating out people were starting to connect and form community in their community about restaurants and things like that and now the question is like as the 2010s progressed in what ways did that you know some of that stuff just become surface you know and in, and in, and in what ways does like you can't sustain that kind of growth and energy uh, throughout the decade. So, you know, as, as you know, when I think about the turnover of restaurants that we had in the early teens, you know, as we were finishing the blog, there was a lot less turnover toward the end of the decade, but that's partly because a lot of the vacant spaces just stayed vacant. Yeah. Nobody decided that they were going to bet the house on, uh, on a restaurant. I mean. Yeah. And I certainly, I think uh, state street, is probably the the best example of you know storefronts that are empty and tend to stay empty now. You mentioned Sunprints earlier, so um, when you guys were looking through archives and stuff, um, well, first of all, wh where where were you getting a lot of your your historical resources for for re researching this? I know like the Diner Scorecard. Um, column has been going on since the 70s, I think, in the State Journal. Uh, and um, yeah, so where else were you guys getting stuff? And uh, what what was like a, one of the more surprising 
aspects that that you guys stumbled upon in all those dusty <laughs> archives? Oh, sure. Well, I think I started at the clippings file at the Madison Public Library. So actually, your old-fashioned, upright, uh, somebody clipped newspapers apart and filed them in manila, manila folders for years. Um, this is what we did before the internet. <laughs> this, is, this is what librarians contribute to the world. Absolutely. It was golden because there was a file folder on a person or a restaurant or even a street or an event. And so... Um, I would start there. I would start, you know, tracing names of people who were involved in things. Um, and then it was easy to search the online uh, archives of newspapers. Um, even before things were reviewed, there were ads, of course. And so you could always track things with ads, um, telephone directories, property records. Um, yeah, I spent, a, I spent a couple of days in the, uh, uh, couple of days with the, uh, with the business directory listings, which go all the way back to, you know, 1870. And you can like, okay, what called themselves a restaurant, you know, in this first edition of the, of the, of the Madison city directory. And of course that was complicated because at the time, a lot of things that you would think of as restaurants were just calling themselves bars and taverns. At that time. Right. Mm -hmm. right. So yeah, that's where we started. And then, yeah, of course there were reviews of course of restaurants and, um, unfortunately, we didn't do as much interviewing of real live people as I would have liked to. Um, and the book was way too short. It was not allowed to be longer, long enough to include some of the stories I would have wanted to. Um, and thankfully, I'm seeing that being rectified somewhat, particularly with um, the African-American restaurant uh, legacy here. I really feel like I could find hardly anything in those clipping files. And I think that's a cause and effect, maybe, of some of the uh, some of the racially based like silencing of stories that we have in this city, unfortunately. But um, I think that that's being rectified with books like Setlin, and uh, you know, people are telling their own stories now, so that's that's really great. Yeah. So there were some gaps in our paper files. Uh, we tried not to fill them in with lies as best we could. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, I have to say there were a couple things that I really loved about the book. One of them was like I started thinking about the hot dog carts all over the city and being like, where are our hot dog carts? <laughs> Man, like where'd they go? We still like hot dogs. How come they're not here anymore? Anyway, that was one thing that I remembered. And then I remembered also like you deal with some really tricky stuff, like some some challenging issues, like with mental health around the ovens of Brittany and everything there. And and when you're when you're trying to talk about people's stories and you don't want it to be a tell all, but you also don't necessarily want to leave out things that are maybe important and informative about the history of these places. And so I wonder as as we're looking at maybe some more closures this year of restaurants in a time that was really difficult, you know, I I wonder if if you have any perspective on how you handle talking about the things that maybe aren't as pretty or happy or around like the, the way we normally talk about going out to eat for a good time. Right. Right. Hmm. That's yeah. Um, I think our goal was to present things factually uh, without any sort of loaded language or uh, without judgment associated with it. So, you know, if, if, uh, if someone, for example, I don't remember that we did this, but if someone 
embezzled something, we we wouldn't say that they became greedy or that you know they were uh, that they were swiping from the till. We would probably just say this person was charged with embezzlement, which led to the dis, you know the dissolving of the of the business arrangement with them and their partner. You know, I mean, like just to try to keep it as factual as possible. You know, there's there's fun stories. There's ways to express uh, uh, good stories. You know, we 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 do spend a, a fair amount of time on on uh, talking about a little bit about the leg the Madison legacy of 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 Eddie Ben Elson, and you know, and he's a real colorful character and very very funny. But it is also true that he had a mental health problem, uh, and and that that led led him to take his own life. And we don't want, we want his life to be recognized and his death to be a fact of his life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there are also, you know, so many stories like, like you mentioned of not necessarily embezzling, but I know that there were, you know, a handful of places where drugs were, were a huge problem in the, in the seventies. And, um, what was it? There was a, like a Mexican restaurant, I think that, you know, was kind of a well-known like drug front and like, I mean, just a big, yeah, kind of a, you know, yeah. So. Right. We tried not to, even though people love to then come to us and say, well, you know about that place, wink, wink. You know, that's just, uh, <laughs> that's part of the oral history too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Something else that, uh, I'm reminded of is there's a lot of arson and a lot of fires as well. A lot of supposed arson um so yeah telling the the end story of the end of a restaurant um it can be sad but generally the personalities who made it possible and who brought it to life uh go on to other better sometimes different uh good things and that can always be uh something to celebrate i think in the context of this summer too i was thinking a lot of the summer of act 10 when our consciousness was also massively raised around labor rights and labor issues. And I think that that's come up again uh, this summer, um, just the overall call for justice as well. You know, labor drives this whole industry and the industry as a whole has not had a great track record in treating people well. Um, and that's really something that I hope we can take a lesson from and really change. And as, as eaters to have a conscience about it as well, it's it's not a new issue, but I'm I'm hopeful that that that's a trend that we can a lesson we can take from this. Where essential workers, you know, they're not expendable, and uh, yeah. to be a frontline worker to put your life on the line for someone else's pleasure, uh, it's a serious it's a serious thing. Yeah, yeah, I know. For me, I think it has definitely put a lot more of a spotlight on the gig economy and you know people that are doing the food deliveries. Um, seems like that's the, you know, stratifying of the, the class divide and everything like that. It's definitely opened up a lot more conversations that are, uh, and, and made things that were kind of tangential to food much more directly linked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think about some of the restaurants that have closed this year, like Mana Cafe for one, um, or even like Graft on the square. like my friends would go to graft every time they had a special occasion and it became a really special place for them. And, you know, even places like Sunprint, you mentioned Sunprint. What 
what do you think makes a restaurant memorable? Like, wh- why do we remember the restaurants that we remember? Well, um, you know, it's it can. I think about the restaurants that I most specifically remember, and I think it's it's oftentimes uh, bound up in a in a in a time of life. Um, in a in, you know, there are either you you do something special at that location. I mean, you know. When I look back on the on the rest on the you know we we ate at 777 restaurants uh, in the first pass, and you know I, those of those meals I can remember off the top of my head probably only a handful, and they tend to be when there was something uh, something special that was associated with it. Maybe it was an anniversary, maybe it was taking an out of town friend. Uh, out for a specific meal. So um, someone special, probably. I mean, Lindsay, you mentioned, you know, it's the people that you eat with. And Chris, it's the food carts you visit with near near strangers from the internet. I think, that, yeah, I think that it's the people. Absolutely. Um, and then you have an experience to look back on that you can share. And I think in our second pass, you know, when we did start trying to eat at every corner bar with a Pepsi menu, um, <laughs> It might have been boring to write about the food because the food was so very much the same across the board. But those places were clearly, you know, gathering places for people. They meant a lot because that's where your friends are. And it's hard to stay home because that's where your friends are. And that illustrates what a hard spot we're in with this, this stupid pandemic. Absolutely. So I think that's what makes it mem- memorable. I don't know how, you know, maybe it's one person's idea to get started going to a certain place. Um, but then it becomes a tradition pretty quick, and then uh, and that's what it is. Now, of course, if you're just seeking new experiences, then, of course, it's going to just be how good is the food? How affordable is the price? <laughs> um, is it something spectacular that you want to keep coming back for? So, And, of course, you know, I think there's, there's something to be said for maybe, let me say that there's sort of two things. One, if there's a menu item that, you know, sort of – if when I would have described Bluefy's cookie dough egg rolls back in the day, that was, that was something that was like, okay, when I come to Madison, I want to try that. I'm going to come and visit you and we're going to go and we're going to get that. Uh, the same thing was true with the Nutella pizza at Cafe Porta Alba. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I think, I think lots of places um, are like that. Um, there may be food types that fall into that category as well. Like when I go, when I get sushi, I go to Muramoto. Like when I get sushi, I go to, you know, that's just, that's what I do. And the final uh, thing to think about uh, was that is there, it's possible that there's a menu uh, that when this group of friends gets together, that person loves this, this person, there's nothing objectionable for that guy who's picky, this person gets this. And I never have to think when we go to graft, I never have to think when we go to, uh, when we go to uh, vintage, you know, we, when we go to this restaurant, everybody's going to be happy. Everyone's going to have a, a good time. Yeah. Everyone's got, everyone's got a menu that they want. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't have to worry like we do when we go to the, Korean barbecue that somebody else is going to turn up their nose at anything with kimchi on it. For sure. 
Yeah, yeah. Sort of like there was a pizza at Greenbush that all the Bariks employees would get every time they went with like goat cheese and banana peppers and stuff. And they will all they all remember exactly what was on that pizza. All those employees like like, OK, yeah, this is and this is the Bariks staff pizza kind of thing from the Monroe Street Bariks. Um, I was remembering, too, when when Four Quarter closed last year, um, I ran into Johnny Hunter outside and I said, you know, you started this, like your team started this, but, but it became ours. Like it was mine too. And I had ownership of that place just because I spent so many hours playing cards at the bar, you know, and, and just to hang out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it, and it is, it's, it's, the food is, is important, but so is the vibe. Absolutely. You know, and that comes from, from the people you're with and the people that, that are there. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. So, I mean, if if anything, 2020 has definitely shown us that uh, making predictions is, is tough. <laughs> but... But um, with everything kind of being as up in the air as it is, and with with your you know deep deeper understanding of the the cycles and churn of Madison's overall restaurant scene, uh, I mean, are there any predictions or hopes or expectations of how this might shape up and how you know the the, the food scene here is going to look in five, 10 years or how we're going to look back on this and, you know, what's risen from the ashes and, you know, what never comes back or I don't know. That's a, a big, big bite to chew on, but. <laughs> sure. Well, we can, we can dream. Um, <laughs> if everybody feels the way I do, we're going to see a lot more comfort food and just a lot more places that, are comfortable for being in with people again. The food might take a sideline maybe in a lot of places where you just want to get together with people and not be at home. <laughs> yeah. um, I would think places like that would do well, um, but also places that do creative things that you can't cook at home um, or that you're not willing to, like a morning bun. Um, one of the things that always guided our choice of what to eat at a restaurant was how likely am I to try to cook this at home? Um, or is it an ingredient that I think is really gross and I would never want to buy and try to cook and mess up at home? Like I'll, I'll, I'll buy the organ meat dishes when I'm out because there's a professional <laughs> making them taste good. Um, so I think, yeah, between comfort and adventure, maybe a little, we might see some interest in that. I think we're going to go through a period where there's not going to be a lot of restaurant clothing. Uh, in the in the two years um, after the pandemic lifts, just because the thing if they made it through that, they were on pretty firm footing and are going to be pretty stable. That said, there probably will be a, a period of time in which there aren't necessarily a lot of restaurant openings either, uh, just because uh, people are trying to to you know to to get their footing back. They're not necessarily hey we just survived this let me go run out. I think at some point we will turn that corner and people will continue to dream of, Hey, I want to, I want to, I want to own a restaurant and that's, and I make a really mean 
X dish and I want to share that with others or I, you know, I'm coming out of school, you know, there's young kids who've maybe now been trained uh, as pandemic chefs for their families, uh, uh, turn 21 and decide that they want to go and, and learn, <laughs> learn and, and uh, found restaurants themselves. Uh, I think we'll, I think ultimately we'll see a wave of that just when is hard to say. Um, but I do think that there was a reset button that 2020 provided, which was that, you know, there was probably, but Bass has probably always had, at least since the nineties, too many restaurants, uh, relative to what it could reasonably support. And, uh, through tourist trade and, and, uh, some other stuff we were able to keep that many balls in the air. And now it, the contraction seems like it's, that was just what was going to happen as a result of, as a result of this. That said, we did lose some, some very, you know, storied restaurants here. But again, as I think, as we talked about when, uh, when our book came out, we took, we, we tried to pick some restaurants that we thought were, were pretty permanent to write about, uh, in that. And two of them closed within a week of the book coming out. I mean, it becomes a time capsule as soon as it's between binding, right? Like it's. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And restaurants are, I mean, with, you know, you think about art, um, music, you know, those things, once they're made, everyone can experience them. But for me, having moved here, in 2007, like I'll, I'll never get to eat a Rennebaum's, uh, brownie, you know, I mean, there are just certain very specific things that I can admire and I can, you know, have the recipe from, you know, that might've been published in a cook's exchange article, but I will never know how close that is to the actual taste of of what that experience was at the time. And so it's it's good to have those the reviews and the journalism about those things, but with restaurants, it's just it's so hard to go back and you know wrap your head around what those things were. It's so much more ephemeral. Um, I'll just tell this story briefly. Uh, so I I moved here in uh, September of '99, and uh, Nicole and I were engaged at that point, and she wanted to. Um, so she would visit me some weekends and I had some friends who were, who had gone to school in Madison and were still here. And, um, one weekend when Nicole was down, they said, well, you know, what we should do is we should go to Ovens Brittany. Now in 1999, I had no idea, you know, what that meant or, you know, what, like, okay, we'll go to wherever you want to go. And we went and we ate. And neither one of us can remember what we ate. Neither one of us can remember uh, if we even necessarily liked it or we're like, hey, let's go back to this. Or We have, we know we ate there, but that is the extent of what we know about that restaurant experience. And when we're doing the research for the book and we're identifying that, yeah, you know, Owens and Brittany is kind of the, the inflection point, the time that Madison sort of went from being uh, sort of normal Midwestern, maybe college towns. There's a Chinese restaurant. There's a like to sort of being like 
hey, there's a bunch of people here and they really make a bunch of really great restaurants. And, you know, like that's the inflection point. And we're like, so we ate there and we have no, we have no memory at all. It was wasted on us. The experience <laughs> totally wasted. <laughs> we didn't know at the time that you were going to want to remember it later. It was just lunch or whatever. I, you know, it's as, as we think about sort of looking back and looking forward kind of back and forth here at the end of the year, which is something I think we do at the end of most years, right? I've been thinking a lot recently about how service is going to look different and like both kind of what we're going to be expected to do for ourselves as diners, but also just the few times that I've eaten out on patios, the, the, the more formal service where somebody keeps coming by to refill your wine glass or, you know, your wine glass or give you new silverware, stop coming by my table. Like just Right. And and I and I want a heads up when you do. And I think that's going to linger even after we're all, you know, happily vaccinated. You know, there's still some of that like, you know, it's nice to flip a little card and call your server over. And maybe that means there can be fewer servers who are paid better or or we could they can more equitably split with the back of the house, which is more of an issue. Right. But I, I'm so curious how service is going to look different. We were talking earlier about Yelp and, you know, how people express their opinions um, there. And it's, I mean, everybody's got a platform and that's great because more voices is good and democracy of those voices, right? That's always, always good. I think, you know, more voices, but I'm, I'm really curious how we as a dining public are going to respond to some of the changes in service that are going to have to happen because of, of the pandemic. And also because the restaurant industry needs to be more equitable than it is. So I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that as well. Oh. Kind of a long question. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, well, I don't know where we're headed, but I do know that as we researched the book, the idea of what a restaurant was and how service worked changed many, many times over the years. So yes, yes. it started out as taverns that would just put salty food out on the bar in an enticement to get you to drink more. And there was just a bartender, right? Or um, then there was the cafeteria style, which was a trend that came to us from the West Coast. And I don't know if we ever had an automat. Yeah, I don't know that we were that fancy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, of course, the carts, as was mentioned, those are basically a one- or two-person operation. So um, all these things uh, evolved and changed over time. So I think you're absolutely right, Lindsay. Something is going to be retained that we learned was a good idea, even though we were forced into it. So I'm curious. That That may happen. One of the other things is that one, I would say that restaurants, especially in Madison, have been pretty good about using found space. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about the old, the first location of, um, uh, what was it, Cafe Costa Rica, that little downstairs four top cramped space off Butler, um, you know, just in the basement of the hostel, right? Right, yeah. right. And, 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 you know, um, Dottie Dumpling's Dowry was in a Quonset hut off of uh, Monroe Street at a time. And I'm just curious how, uh, what the reverberations are going to be of the pandemic in terms of uh, HVAC in restaurants and whether or not there's going to be a, uh, whether or not there's going to be sort of a, uh, like, you have to have this level of air circulation in order to have a in order to have a place where people are going to sit and eat and be together, there needs to have a certain level of air exchange that occurs. 
And a lot of those, you know, those kinds of regulations as they as they roll out will be will be hard on on upstart, you know, and and new restaurateurs. And we have to see what, you know, those barriers to entry that come from the law and the law's got a good reason behind it, but it does create a barrier to entry uh, for new people. Yeah. That makes me wonder if curbside is going to stay a thing. You know, maybe you don't have dine-in service, but you have cooks and chefs who are uh, producing really good carryout. And that also reminded me of how Michael's started um, with the gas stations. The reason there was such a massive wave of closures of locally owned gas stations in the 80s was because federal environmental protection laws basically shut down every mom and pop gas station in the city who couldn't afford to upgrade their their tanks. so their loss was custard's gain, um, and no one could have predicted that that change. So you may be surprised. Yeah, yeah. I, it's been interesting going forward with all of this, with the the delivery and curbside pickup, um, where I have the the restaurant experience. I I haven't necessarily been a, as critical, or I guess I've been more like much more generous, like. When, when I get an order from someplace, it's like, well, this isn't the, the actual experience. This is, you know, the, the best that everyone's doing with the hand that they've been dealt. Uh, and that's certainly been interesting. So in, in a way I've certainly eaten at a lot or, you know, from a lot of places, but I also don't know if I would say that I have eaten <laughs> from, from these places specifically. Right. Right. It's a good point. Yeah, yeah. No chef is going to want to be, you know, marked down uh, for you know the 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 experience that that we're all having right now with this whole year that just has this massive asterisk attached to it. <laughs> it really does. Mm-hmm. Uh, early on in the pandemic, I kept getting people being like, "Are you going to review takeout?" And I said, "No, <laughs> I'm not," because it seemed like fully unfair to, I mean, pretty much everyone. For starters, as you all well know, like you don't when you're ordering to write about it, it's very different than if you're just ordering for yourself. Like I try to get all these different proteins and different parts of the menu and really get the representation. I'm not going to eat at home that way. (laughs) I would die. (laughs) You have to have help. You know, you have to have help. And then this idea that they're going to make something beautiful and then put it in a little box and send it home with me and I'm going to eat it 40 minutes later. That's just unfair. So um, what's been interesting, too, is that I feel like I, I love food, as you all know, and I love to cook. And I sometimes don't feel like it's worth it. Like, I feel like, well, if if I'm going to have to get it from a box, like, I, I want to have the experience. I want to sit up at the bar and, you know, play cards and eat my food. Yeah. Um, so I I was wondering if there were any... Um, Chris, you, you've been sort of talking about this for a lot of the pandemic about sort of reminiscing about places that we miss, um, or just wanting to recognize them. And I know, for example, for me, I miss the Robin room. I love the Robin room and I really would have loved to go inside the muskie, uh, in the Lake Edge neighborhood and on Madison's East side where I live. And we can't go inside there. I can see the murals from outside. They look really cool. But so there are places like that, that I'm, that I'm missing and also sardine. For me, I love the the French vibe there. But are there places for all of you 
uh, that you miss right now? Man, really anywhere where I could sit down and have a cup of coffee with a person across the table. Really anywhere, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Nicole, Nicole's a big Collectivo fan. I think that's probably her. Yeah, that's kind of. Her go-to for that. kind of ouchy. Um, and a lot of places have, have built on their really nice views. Um, you know, like I can eat a nice meal anywhere, but if I can eat with a lake view, you know, I think about a year ago, maybe a little bit, as a matter of fact, I think my, so my parents had their wedding anniversary in December. And I think we took them last year to Captain Bill's. Is that right? Yes. Uh, on, you know, and it was a snowy evening, but you know, you get a nice view of, of Lake Medota with the snow coming down on it. And, you know, and they had a nice warm fireplace there. And you're just not, you know, it's, it's that, it's feeling. If I really want the, if I really want the, um, the food experience, I can get curbside if I'm willing to brave that. But most of the time, what I'm missing is, is just the place and the people, the people that I ate with that I could sit across the table from. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and. I miss the spontaneity. Oh, like the number of times that I have not been hungry at all, but <laughs> have just walked into an Ian's and walked out with, you know, the the mac and cheese, you know, slathered in hot sauce. Um, you know, I mean, like, like that that can't happen now. Um, or, you know, the, the late night menu at tornado where I would just be around there. Um, you know, and it's like, well, what are we going to do now? Oh, well, let's go and just, you know, pull up a a stool at the bar at tornado because it's 10 o'clock and I can now get, you know, very, very reasonably priced food off their menu, which just to throw it out there as well of all of the delivery food that we have gotten, or we did pick up um, tornado. We ordered for, I had a birthday last weekend and we did that as my birthday meal and that held up beautifully. And the presentation was wonderful. And yeah, tornado room for curbside was magnificent. So um, yeah, fried fish made it, made it home and hung out and was really was some of the best fish fry I've had. So um, delicious walleye. Anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I miss the the spontaneity of things because even now it's if you're ordering, you know, it's you're, you're still waiting 45 minutes at least, if not more than yeah. that, for something to show up. We ate it. We did get uh, curbside from Quivies for our wedding anniversary. Um, that was sort of the one time we, we splurged on that. But that's the other thing is that like, like so many places were for like, oh, let's meet my friends here and we'll go and we'll we'll uh we'll eat and we'll uh and we'll talk and this will be the place that we do it. And just like I just there's none of that. There's not like, oh I'll get takeout from there and you get takeout from there and we'll eat on Zoom together isn't quite the same <laughs> just isn't quite the same thing. Um and then, of course, I, I guess I'll throw this one out there from a personal note, which is that I was on a pretty good uh, active uh, trivia team when we hit lockdown on the pandemic, and uh, we are not uh, not doing that at present. 
Yeah. I mean, I used to host uh, a Geeks Who Drink pub quiz. Um, and yeah, that was the first thing to go. Uh, I remember I was actually hosting uh, at Hopcat. Now the, the, the dearly departed Hopcat. <laughs> uh, and when in, in the middle of the quiz, when I started getting the the one to you know cell cell phone notifications of Tom Hanks has COVID. And then directly after that was the NBA game getting evacuated. And so that night was the one where I was like, oh, this is this is done. Like we're <laughs> like trivia's done. <laughs> like we are officially gonna be done with life as we know it for the foreseeable future. Um yeah. Yeah, trivia. Miss it. Yeah. So maybe to wrap us up here a little bit, I wonder if we want to just share any highlights that we've had of this year from delivery or pickup. Like for me, it was definitely Papavaro. Um, earlier in the pandemic, I got some gorgeous food from them. Um, and also I loved getting the Dexter's fish fry. Like shout out to Dexter's. That was really great. Um Loved that fish fry. It was really good. Um, so those were my two. Um, but yeah, if we if we maybe want to wrap up and just say any highlights or shout outs to places that have gotten really great curbside, in addition to Tornado, already mentioned. A momentary resurrection of the, the eating in Madison A to Z uh, aesthetic. Yes. Oh, man, this is a tough question. We have been so out of the loop, you guys. <laughs> That's all right. Our standby has been Chipotle drive-through burrito. What's nice about the Chipotle is that uh, is that you don't order there. You order on the app and you just pick up. Nice efficiency. <laughs> yep, yep. Muya, touchless. Unfortunately, these are chains. Well, ties. Uh, We've been eating. We've been eating a fair amount of ties. So we did throw our chain thing out the window. Something about apps. Just the convenience of it just trumped. Everything else, unfortunately. But yes, Thai's Asian Bistro, I would say, is it's close to us. They do contactless pickup in their little lobby, and it does stay fresh and delicious. And they have a wide variety of different dishes, from adventurous to uh, pedestrian. standard pedestrian. Um, <laughs> and you know what I am going to miss about Thai's, though, again, was that experience. You go in there, and every once in a while, you'll be treated to the fourth grade. Uh, you know, relative of one of the staffers practicing their Suzuki violin in the back room. And it's just like, you're never going to have that yeah. again. Because <laughs> they're all home safe, rightfully so. But, you know, it's just a totally different vibe. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I mentioned Tornado, but the, the prime rib at, um, at Brothers 3 was another real highlight that, that hung on. And they also had a, uh, we got it for brunch, and so it also we we added on a make your own Bloody Mary kit, which just came with a whole bottle of Fleischmann's. <laughs> it was it was wonderful. <laughs> That's fun. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. That's really fun. I think I need to do a Bloody Mary kit to go for like. Christmas or New Year's this year. I think that's got to be part of making the holiday special when I cannot go anywhere. And I, my, my husband is a wonderful person, but I see him every day and I'm not seeing anybody else. So maybe some Bloody Marys yes, will help. That's a great gift idea. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Dahlia, for making an appearance. <laughs> uh, thank you for having her and us. I, yes. I hope that editing isn't too much of a challenge. <laughs> Um, are you, I mean, are, are there any, any plugs you want to make, uh, places where people can get the book? I know on the site you make a, go to great effort to highlight all the local places you can buy it or any Twitter or Instagram accounts you guys have that are worth throwing out there. Wow. You know, we're really not, we haven't been active in that at all. Um, but if folks are interested in the book, you can get it digitally safely at home delivered to your electronic device through the public library that would be my best my best plug to make um you can of course still buy it at your favorite local online retailer um and even in some walgreens they do have end cap displays from our publisher so you can pick it up along with other stories of wisconsin ghost tales and other uh, postcard replica books and all kinds of uh fun blasts from the past so um you know, if you see if you see it, maybe pick up a copy at your local Walgreens when you're getting your airborne and your masks and your hand sanitizer. Twenty <laughs> twenty. <laughs> oh well, thank you again. Oh, thank you. Yes, Thanks for thank having you. us. Wonderful. This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. My amazing partner, Patrick Christians, composed our music, and our wonderful editor, Natalie Yar, edits the show every other week. We love you, we Natalie. We love you, Natalie. Lindsay and I have both had such a good run here in Corner Table Land, and we have been so glad to share it with our listeners. You can, of course, still find food and drink news at captimes.com. In fact, there is a feature this week about holiday baking. So go and get some of that last minute inspiration that we know you need. Next week, I will be hosting a Cap Times Zoom event with chef and cookbook author Courtney Burns. That's Tuesday, December 29th at 7 p.m. And it is for members only. So if you want to cook along and ask questions during the demo, go to captimes.com and sign up. And once again, this is my shameless weekly plug for the movie podcast that I co-host. It is called Just To Be Nominated. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, the next episode that's coming out, we have got a big year-ending talk about our favorite 2020 films, most of which you can find on streaming somewhere, and only a few of which we saw in theaters, because 2020 was not a great year for theaters. I am Lindsay Christians. And I am Chris Lay. Thank you so much for listening. It has truly been a pleasure. Truly. Our wish for you this week is something sparkling. Champagne. Miller High Life. The champagne of beers. Sparkling grape juice so you can go all night. You do you. We love you. Cheers. Ah, <laughs> uh, We actually said it at the same time for once. It's amazing. Took took an entire year. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.